0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chai Nu. This week, there's no Kieran. Unfortunately, he's not been able to make it. He's been stuck in a work meeting. However, don't despair. We've got a fantastic guest to talk to today. Her name's Safi, and she's going to give herself a little introduction before we get into our main conversation.
1: Hi, so I'm Safi. I am 22. I'm from Sheffield. I'm a uni student and I have an Instagram account called Dear Brown Girl, uh, where I talk about feminism and issues in the South Asian community that particularly affect women. All right. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so I I found your, I guess, blog, your Instagram blog, and the main post I found was Bender Like Beckham because. any listeners of the show would know that I rate the film very highly because it just happened to be like the soundtrack of my childhood growing up. (laughs) And yeah, I had a little obsession with football. So, you know, yeah. And I think it's, I have a different experience with the film because obviously the film's primary audience are brown girls. And as a brown guy, like, there's not exactly like the primary audience for the film, but the main thing I see in the film is about this struggle of i guess trying to be like true to your roots but still trying to be british yeah and i think that was what you were trying to highlight in your post but i just want to know what your thoughts are about on the film
1: yeah i mean i completely agree i think when you grow up i guess with dual identities so being brown but you're you're born in um, a very white country i think you don't get or see a lot of these films i mean That is probably one of the films I saw growing up that I think really represented, like you just said, how you feel having that experience. And I think to see someone go through the same struggles that myself and probably a lot of brown kids out there is um, the struggles with your culture, but also wanting to live, I guess, a Western life. To put it quite simply, like you feel quite torn between the both of them. And you don't really know, I guess, where, like it's hard to find the balance between the two. And I think that that film does show that really well. So I think that a lot of brown kids, especially that I know, say that they can relate to it a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've realized I mean, if someone hasn't watched Bended Like Beckham by now. <laughs> uh, quick story, so it's about Jess. She's doing her A-level, so she's finishing off high school. She joins the a local women's football team. And it's her sister's wedding is happening the same year, and she's, like, being torn on trying to play football, the sport that she loves. But her parents are more concerned about getting her married or getting her into university okay. and trying to get her on her, like, a traditional Asian life. And it's her trying to balance that out. And, you know, it's very representative for a lot of South Asians in the UK.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But I was going to say, like, for me, that there. So many like quotable moments in that film, but it's very interesting that what just uh, 15 years later, you know, we get blinded by the light, which is, I guess, a film for the listeners. Uh, it's based on a true story, it's in I want to say Milton Keynes off the top of my head again, I should know this. <laughs> Luton. <laughs> Luton, that's it, it's in Luton, of course. Like, there's yeah. a big difference yeah. about. Pakistani family and he's trying to be a writer and he falls in love with Bruce Springsteen because Bruce Springsteen fall like speaks to him. Yeah. But you know, he's he's trying to stand up for his community, even though it's like not the way his parents want him to do it. And I was gonna say like they're are very similar themes throughout the film. I was wondering, did you find that Blinded by the light spoke to you just as well or, or was nostalgia more important to you when it came to blind Light Beckham or anything?
1: Yeah, I think I think Bend It Like Beckham, because it's an older film, it's something that I grew up watching quite a lot. So I guess I've got that connection to it. But I still think Blinded by the Light is a great film. I relate to the both of them really well. And I think that they both, I'd say the common theme running through the both of them is the fact that the main characters are both pulled in two directions. One way for their culture and staying true to their roots. And then the other one is wanting to live their life in the way that I guess their family doesn't really approve of them. And for me, I think that that's something that stands out so much. And I think that's what, as you were saying, like a lot of brown kids can relate to, because I think it's so difficult to express that sometimes. But when you watch someone on screen going through the same thing that you're experiencing, you're like, oh my gosh, like they just show it so well. I never knew that this is like that, or I never thought anyone would understand. But I think that's what I really love about both both of the films.
0: Uh, So... I think that the main criticism of like Bender like Beckham and to a degree, blinded by light is that there's always seen like uh, what was it called? It was called a I wrote this down a white savior in yeah. Bender like Beckham. <laughs> but also I think because like blinded by the light was based on a true story. It's a bit sad that this is something that's still happening that we're still yeah. struggling to have this, like we well we I'm I'm speaking very like <laughs> on your behalf there. <laughs> But but having this uh, cultural identity crisis to some degree, at least I'm having that. Yeah. And I was just wondering, like you said like the film spoke to you, but did they help resolve anything in that sense?
1: I mean, we're just touching on the white saviour thing that you mentioned, that especially when Jess talks about, she has a really upsetting moment in the film where she's speaking about the racism that she experiences during a football match. And then Joe turns around and says to her, oh, well, I get it, I'm Irish. And I just think that (laughs) I don't think it's meant to be a funny moment, but watching it now, you're just like, I can't believe that that's in the film. Like, how is that ever on the same level? But I think watching it back now, you see these things within the films that maybe when you watched it when you were younger, that you didn't really pick up on at first. And I think that I mean, I do love the both both of the films, but. Bend it like Beckham does have its problematic moments, and I definitely say the white savior complex within the film is probably the one that stands out the most.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, oh, why, have I, why am I blanking on Jess's <laughs> friend's name? Is it Jules? Her it's friend? Not, no, Jules. Is Keira Knightley's character. <laughs> <friend, isn't laughs> yeah. It? No, um, it's the guy. We have the gay. Uh, but yeah. my, but my point is, it does have like this white savior one, but then it's very modern. And trying yeah. to deal with a problem like that,
1: yeah. And I think that's good that they highlight that within the film too, because again, I definitely say that homophobia is a thing, a major problem in South Asian communities too. So I think it's good that they do show that storyline within the movie.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure as we continue chatting, we'll talk about more <laughs> different, more or other issues in the South Asian yeah. community. Yeah. But. So, would you change Bennda like Beckham in that sense? Would you get rid of that white like Joe's character or that love story?
1: Gosh, that's a good question. i think I think it is problematic in terms of I think it's good that they show interracial couples because that's something again, within the South Asian community that marrying outside of your culture or religion is still quite frowned upon. I mean, that's generalizing quite a lot, but I think it is still a major issue. But um, I know a lot of people have said this and I kind of agree. I kind of wanted Jess and Jules to get together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just think it probably would have been a better storyline. And I think that the movie kind of implied it was going that way. But then obviously Jess was with Joe. But yeah, I think that's probably something that I would change.
0: I mean, Jules's mom would agree with you. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I think if it was to be done again today, I think that would be the more logical storyline yeah. to follow. But I was going to say the one thing that I find, I think scarily I find still touching is that, you know, this focus on getting married is yeah. like that highlight in Ben like Beckham. Yeah. And even to a degree blind by the light, you know, the dad's like, you know, if you don't have this proper job, how are we going to get your wife and like get you yeah. sorted out? Of and it's like speaking a little bit more to me and that's more of a concerning thing. <laughs> Like, like now my parents are like, ooh, what's going on with that side of your (laughs) life? And it's just like, nothing you need to know right now.
1: It is. I think that that's a major thing that's really imposed upon most brown kids. Like, as soon as they come out the womb, it's like, okay, when are you getting married? You need to start thinking about this. And I think especially in Bend It Like Beckham, there's a moment where Jess's sister turns around and says to her, on the wedding day, this day is it's the best day of your life, like, don't you want all this? And then she's like, I want more. And I think that it's really hard because that's what I think a lot of the older generation do try and impose on kids so much is that marriage is something that we all should aspire to and especially for women that becoming a wife and a mother is like the ultimate goal in life. But I think the film shows really well that brown girls can have ambition and they can want more than just marriage.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, the film, well, Ben, like Beckham, ends with you know both Jules and Jess going yeah. to the states, yeah, and like pursuing their education or football there as well as getting into university there. And then you know, Blind Belight is following their true story. So we see the character goes and becomes a fully fledged author and writer, yeah, as well as a Bruce Springsteen fanatic. But, <laughs> yeah, and I guess this ties in, like as you're trying to say, like what's being imposed on you. Yeah, And I guess that leads quite nicely into, you know, what your blog is about, because it's yeah. not I'm not imposing things on people, but talking about things that are being imposed on you. Yeah. Because your blog is about intersectional feminism, right? Yeah. Correct? Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> so I think like when we we're doing our chat together, it's something that I have some knowledge on, but I think I'm going to leave it to you to probably explain it better than I will. Uh,
1: yes, I'll give it a go. So intersectional feminism is a framework that aims to separate itself from I guess white feminism so that it kind of emphasizes that discrimination just doesn't act or exist within a bubble so women will experience oppression in varying configurations and varying degrees of intensity so for example things like race and gender are interrelated and influence each other But also race, caste, ethnicity and ability all become really important as well in this context. And oppression just, it's really important to emphasize that oppression just doesn't exist in the same manner for everyone. So for example, a South Asian woman would be penalized due to her gender and her race. So I guess, I mean, the bottom line of intersectional feminism, I think, is that it challenges the idea that traditional feminism, which is White upper class, ableist, or like cis heterosexual, and this type of feminism really fails to represent the issues faced by marginalized women. And intersectional feminism just really takes into account all these different aspects of identity. So it's about empowering all women, and um, but also takes into the account the differences of all women as well.
0: So <laughs> yeah, that, that's a like a really good summary. I think yeah, you know, as you pointed out. With, like, Joe saying, I know what racism is because I'm Irish. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not like it, it can be racist and no one's denying them, but it's not the same understanding. And that's yeah. what intersectional feminism is about, as you're saying it's about.
1: Yeah. It's about I the don't... differences within, yeah, the differences that women experience at varying degrees. It doesn't necessarily mean that one is over the other, but it's realizing that women aren't just discriminated on. For be for their gender, it's a lot more than that. So race or class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like these all make up the idea of intersectional feminism.
0: And like, how did you find out about it? Like, I, I, I don't assume you know. You're, <laughs> this was like a dinner like conversation with your parents.
1: No, <laughs> I mean I think I really got interested in feminism. I think growing up, you just notice. As a brown woman, you just notice these things like the patriarchy within our communities. And then I think we're just going to university and joining things like the Feminist Society and reading up on these kinds of things and exposing myself to all of this information. It kind of resonated with me and I was like, OK, like I find these issues really interesting. And I think that there's such an issue within the brown community that women are discriminated against all the time. And I think that's what really encouraged me and inspired me to create the Instagram account. Because I think as well from a the generation aspect, again, it's the balancing of the cultures and being told that you're not brown enough or you're not white enough. And I think that intersectional feminism with that, it kind of, you relate to the varying degrees of, Oppression with being brown and a woman, so I think that that's how I got interested in it, really.
0: so I don't know like, how comfortable you feel about like giving some examples because yeah. I'm sure more of our listeners will know because most of our listeners are like women as we from yeah. our stats we gathered, but I, I just want to clarify it for myself,
1: yeah <laughs> don't mind,
0: like give it, like some examples of where you felt like this oppression like
1: I guess it's constantly being told what you can and can't do growing up as a brown woman, the expectations of what you can wear, how you act, how marriage is something that you have to aspire to, and how men seem to be able to get away with anything because they're men. I mean, I am Punjabi myself, and it's a very proud culture, but I would also say there is still a lot of patriarchy and a lot of of issues within Punjabi communities. And as well, I think, I was interested in these issues because I grew up in a very white town. I grew up in, I have a lot of very white friends. I don't really have many brown friends myself. And I think that I always grew up kind of feeling like the odd one out. And I didn't really have anyone to discuss these issues with. I felt like I was always pushing against what family members would say or arguing back. And I felt like I had something to say, so I wanted to say it. and. I also created the blog Dear Brown Girl so other brown women would know that they're not really alone in feeling like this and speaking about these issues because I think there's a a culture in the South Asian communities of brushing things like under the carpet or away that they're not really spoken about. And I think that I wanted to voice these issues and provide a platform for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the most, I guess, damning experience i think everyone would can relate to is when you have like a family party and like the one thing i always get frustrated by is why none of my male cousins will help clean up
1: yeah exactly
0: it's like why like are you incapable of like yeah
1: Yeah, and i think you also notice that i don't know about your family but men in my family always get served food first and women are always the ones in the kitchens they're always doing the serving or the cooking and to me, I was like, whoa, like, why are the men getting served first? They've done nothing. The They've not helped cook any food. And I think that that's one thing that you grow up and you notice these little things around you. But I think a lot of people don't question them enough. And it's all almost kind of normalized. It's just the way it is. And I think that I always called these things out. And, yeah, I think my family probably think that I argue back too much. <laughs> Um, but that's something that I, I guess I just wanted to speak on more. So, yeah.
0: No, I think, like, in my, like, nuclear family, it's non-issue. Because whenever we would host a party, like, growing up in South Africa, we would, it would just be, you know, everyone would, lo- you normally, like, young people would be, like, us kids would serve first and then, like, left our own devices. Yeah. And then all the adults would just eat together.
1: Yeah.
0: And then I came here to the UK and everyone's like, no you know guys eat together first and then the one is like
1: you
0: know it's also frustrating when you try and help what well, I find and I try and help out I get sent out of the kitchen
1: yeah it's
0: like <laughs> it's like my aunts do not want me there I, I don't know if there's like some conversation I shouldn't be hearing properly <laughs> but you know it's also the best place to learn good recipes so
1: yes exactly there's a lot of knowledge in those kitchens
0: <laughs> yeah and so in my position like as a guy what can I do to, I guess help challenge this or help, like, get a better balance between these roles?
1: I guess it's just calling out the sexism that happens in Asian communities when you see that. Or I guess I started off getting into feminism through reading a lot of feminist books or uh, researching with literature. And I think that it's providing the platform for women's voices to be heard. That's what I think really men should be doing in the community. I mean, it's difficult because South Asian women are told often to not have an opinion or this is just the way it's always done, Uh, don't question things. And I think that it's really important for, for everyone, I think, to dismantle this kind of patriarchy that's there. And I think I would definitely say our generation, I'm so proud to see that it's such a thing that people are actively fighting against and are calling the older generation out on their sexist behavior. But I think it's still going to take a lot of effort and a really long time to dismantle the sexism, really. I think it's not going to change overnight. But I do think in terms of what men can do is just, I don't know, I guess maybe like listening to women and understanding that what they're trying to say and providing the platform for their voices to be heard, really.
0: Yeah, so I want to, like, track back a bit. And you said you you started reading, like, yeah. about feminism. So I'm assuming it's, like, everyone starts with, like, Simone de Beauvoir, like, the, second, <laughs> the second sex. Like I don't know. That's, like, the philosophy student within me. Like, that's where that, everyone must start, right? Or was that, like, your starting point? Or was it, like, blogs? Or did you find someone that, like, got you into this?
1: Yeah, I think... I mean, I did read quite a lot of books, but honestly, social media has been a great help. And I think that that's something that our generation is so grateful for. Because for me, with social media, it was so easy to just follow all these feminism pages that had so much information on and really great resources on intersectional feminism in particular. And I think that there is thousands of feminism accounts out there. But what's great about Instagram is that there'll be fairly short captions, but you can actually learn quite a lot from those captions. And I think that that's something that if people don't necessarily like reading books, but they have social media, it's a really great way to stay informed about these issues. I mean, you look now, especially this week with everything that's being spoken about, about racism, social media has been great for that as a platform. And I think that young people like should really take advantage of the resources that social media has.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's like the best thing you said about social media is it's short and sweet and gets yeah. to the point. Yeah. But I guess like on that unusual person, I like read. Yeah.
1: A long book. <laughs> oh no, <books laughs> are definitely great. Like I'm a big reader, but I know a lot of people that don't really read that much. So I think that social media is a good starting point for that.
0: Uh- it ties in nicely, like, about your blog. So apart from being able to find it on Instagram, yeah, what do you want people to, like, take away from the blog? Like, do they just take away, like, that quicks caption? Or, like, is there, like, a deep meaning that they should try and look for in every post? Or, Yeah.
1: That's a good question as well. I think people take away from it what they want. I mean, that sounds very vague, but I think I do these captions because it's something that I'd like to obviously about intersectional feminism and to issues within the South Asian community, that's the reason why I set up the Instagram in the first place. But I want South Asian women and non-binary people to feel like it's a platform for them and amplifying their voices. And there are so many great like South Asian feminism accounts out there. But I think I just want these people who maybe look at my Instagram to not feel so alone in what they're going through. And this is going back to Bend It Like Beckham and Blinded by the Light, that both of those characters feel like, no, especially in Blinded by the Light, feeling like no one understands what they're going through or that they're the only ones that are feeling like this. And especially growing up as a third generation Punjabi girl, it was hard thinking that no one's going through the same thing that I'm going through, or I feel so torn by staying loyal to my culture but obviously experiencing um I guess stereotypically western life that it's about realizing that you can have the balance of both and I think that's what I want people to take away from it is that there's so many people out there that will be can they can relate to and yeah I think I mean if people want to look and maybe not take that much away from it that's fine but I guess really it's it's a platform for South Asians, and if even if they take a little bit away from it, that's okay too.
0: So I just want to talk about. You said you're third generation, right? Yes. So th- that means your parents were born in the UK, or they're born.
1: Yeah, they like, were born in yeah, born in the UK.
0: Born in the UK. And so is your grandparents had moved? Yes. All right. No, because yeah, the, like that's the lovely thing about the UK. Everyone's like a, there are a lot of third and fourth generation. Yeah. yeah. So unlike a lot of in the States where most people are first or second themselves. I was going to say, like, do you think you have a connection to India still then? Like the people I tend to talk to, not a lot of them go back to India, but they still feel very Indian. So mm-hmm. I was just wondering if that's like the same to you.
1: Yeah. I actually haven't been to India in a really long time, but I definitely still feel connected to my roots. And I think that when I was younger, I really tried to shy away, I'd say, maybe from my culture. I didn't really want to have much to do with it. I think in a way, growing up, because I grew up in a very white town, it was very much, I, was, I would definitely admit to being emba- embarrassed by my culture at some points. And I think that as I got older, um, and again, I think reading books and following South Asian accounts on Instagram I think that that really helped me reclaim my culture and just love the aspects of it. And now, I mean, I love being brown. I love being Punjabi, the same parts of my culture I'm proud of. That's not to say that it doesn't have its downsides. There's still a lot of sexism within our communities. But I think that I really still feel connected. But I think the beauty of being maybe a third or fourth generation immigrant is that you have an experience which is kind of special that you have both you grow up with two cultures and I always say that how lucky I I am that I have that and I think that's one thing that I'm really proud of is being British Punjabi but I have the best of both worlds
0: yeah definitely given the light of what's happened in the last few days you know you talk about the downsides in sexism I think one of the so I guess we're going to date this podcast is like so uh this is in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and all these protests I don't know if you've seen in the news there's like been protests in London. And the one thing I've noticed, like looking at the protests in London, there are not many South Asians there. No. <laughs> and I think that is still a real problem that within the South Asian community, at least yeah. for what the parts that I've experienced, there's still yeah, you know I think this has to do with colorism as well, that there's still a lot of looking down on people who are dark.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: And. Um, you know, a lot of bad-mouthing, uh, I'd say definitely from my grandparents, of bad-mouthing of anyone who's Black. And then, I don't know, is that the same experience you've had? Or
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that anti-Blackness is rife within South Asian communities. And I think, like you mentioned, it touches upon issues of colorism and casteism. And I don't know if you've heard of the model minority myth, especially in the US, that's an issue that, Asians are viewed as more favorable in terms of being intelligent and, I guess, good immigrants. And then Black people are seen as um, criminals with higher levels of poverty. And I think that this is something within the South Asian community that we need to start calling out on. And like you mentioned, grandparents or the older generation that make these remarks, it's educating yourself and then calling out those in the community that, say these things and it's a real issue I mean even if you look in Bollywood all the actresses are white promoting skin lightening creams that's a massive industry in South Asia And, and also blackface as well in a lot of Bollywood films and I think that it's a real issue but I think definitely this past week has really brought this into the light and I think a lot of South Asians really need to turn around and take a look at themselves but also speak about these issues and bring these things up at home if they can and slowly start to talk about these things and know that i think colonialism has a lot to do with this as well and especially in i guess with british south asians that being white is superior um and i think that that really ties into that as well so yeah
0: i think like from my grandparents point of view It's like, so I'm Gujarati and, you know, my family was expelled from Uganda by the Amin. And -hmm. so there's a lot of resentment for that. And I I can't see, like, why there could be resentment because they were forced to leave the country because of them being Indian. But, you know, if you then, like, well, when I've tried to dig slightly deeper into what how they treated people, it wasn't exactly fantastic themselves. Mm -hmm. And the BBC did a fantastic documentary a few years ago on pointing this out, like saying, you know, essentially the Indians that came across to East Africa were meant to be like a buffer class between the blacks and the whites in the country. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole issue there and trying to break that down. And then I remember uh, asking my grandparents about uncle David. So one of dad's friends is from Ghana and Mm -hmm. they said, Oh, well, he's one of the good ones. And it's like, very frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it's not he's one of the good ones most people are good and yeah really try and get them to see that point but yeah you touched on as well the model immigrant right
1: yeah model minority yeah
0: model minority that's it <laughs> and i was wondering have you then heard of the book yeah that's it, the book called the good immigrant which is by uh what's his name Nick shukla yeah uh, yeah and- i've
1: actually read that book i read it a couple of years ago now but I do think it is still a really good book and I think that it's great that there are more of these books coming out now speaking about um, immigrant experience and I think that that's something before that there wasn't much literature on so I think it's definitely something that if listeners haven't read it I would definitely recommend that as well.
0: All right and I I want to like tie slightly back to (laughs) intersectional feminism. Um, (laughs) If I was to go like looking for someone to follow apart from your blog of course what sort of person should i be looking for maybe a particular person to follow
1: well oh my gosh there's so, there's so many um feminist instagram accounts and i think that it just depends i guess what you're looking for and how you relate to things there's queer feminism accounts south asian ones there's so, so many different ones and i think that I think that's the beauty of social media. I mean, I follow so many that I probably would be reeling them off for, <laughs> for too long if I gave all the names. But I would definitely say that utilize social media and you will find so many great accounts out there that speak about these issues. And I think now more than ever. So, I, yeah.
0: Uh, Kiran will kill me if I don't ask you about food because that's the... <laughs> <laughs> Let's try and move it to something slightly yeah. lighter. because. Food is obviously the most bonding thing in culture, and obviously South Asian food is fantastic. Definitely. But you don't have to just talk about South Asian food, though. But yeah, what is your favorite meal?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'd say, I mean, I absolutely love Punjabi food. I think growing up with it, it's my ultimate comfort food. And I really have a sweet tooth. And I love stuff like jalebis. I absolutely love them. And anything sweet-related, to be honest, I'm that person at the party that is heading straight for the sweets. <laughs> so, yeah, I would definitely say that would be my favourite food. Just anything Indian sweet-related.
0: Anything Indian sweet-related. Yeah. I'm on a diet at the moment. I, I miss <laughs> all my Indian sweet. But, yes, I'm trying to think, like, what is, like, uniquely Punjabian? Yeah. The first thing that came to my head is, like, Chawal.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, I love that as well. And I guess... I mean that's the beauty of Indian food is that it can be so diverse as well. So, um, so. say
0: is that like the like when you come home from uni, like that's like you <laughs> asked mom too. Like, can you like please have this ready?
1: Yeah, I think also when you grow up eating something so much it is your ultimate comfort food, I think you really revert back to it, especially if you're having a down day. I think that it's something that can really cheer you up and food is kind of powerful in that way.
0: You say that, but dal is never going to be my comfort food. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, not when your mum makes you have it five days in a row. <laughs> that's not the one.
0: I think we've slightly touched on this, and I guess it's a nice way to round up. Uh, so, what would you say is it to be like a Desi? Like, if I was to, like, say, here's the dictionary, your your chance to define what it means. So, modern like Desi person in the UK, what would it be?
1: I think that's difficult as well because. I think that term tends to lump all South Asians together, and I think we all all the cultures within South Asia are so different.
0: can say let's reword, like then a Punjabi yeah,
1: yeah, being Punjabi,
0: yeah, like a modern one rather than
1: a modern Punjabi I mean the way that I've taken it is being proud of your roots and your culture, but also a modern Punjabi would be someone that discard like does away with the things in our community that we shouldn't be proud of, such as sexism, anti-blackness, homophobia. And I think because Punjabi culture is very proud and it was also very loud, <laughs> I think being a modern Punjabi is taking the best bits, but also recognizing that there's a lot of problematic issues within the community as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good I think that's a good point to leave it. Yeah. <laughs> right, so listeners, if you want to find Safi online, it's Dear Brown Girl, yeah. underscore, right? Yes, it is. At, on Instagram and just Instagram at the moment?
1: Just Instagram at the moment, yes.
0: Right, and don't forget, Try Noon's on Instagram, Chinoons uh, Show. You can email us on Try Noon Show. You've, like, if you've listened to the show, it's all there and it'll be in the show notes. So, And obviously, uh, we'll leave a link to Dear Brown Girl as well. Safi, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And maybe we'll see if we get enough feedback, we'll see you back soon.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>